Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and with me, as always, this week is Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at the broking firm of Winterflood Securities. Well, every week is interesting in the investment trust market. That's one of the things that makes it more fun to follow than the open-ended fund business, which tends not to have so many announcements all the time. And this week, we've been not short of a lot of interesting developments. But let's start by looking at the results of some of the larger, better-known global investment trusts. I'm thinking here of a number of been reporting or giving uh, details about their portfolio. And let's start with um, Scottish Investment Trust. Tell us about them, first of all, and what have they been saying? So Scottish Investment Trust announced their interim results for the six months to the end of April. Quite a credible set of results, all things considered. Their NAV was down just short of 6% compared with a fall for the uh, the global benchmark they use of just over 5%. So they're in the, the kind of right ballpark. The thing to note with this particular investment trust, though, is that uh, under the stewardship of Ali McKinnon, it has very much a kind of contrarian value type investment approach, which, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, has been uh, difficult. Uh, growth has been uh, really the only game in town during this period. Uh, value has struggled. But Despite that, this particular investment trust has has held up reasonably well. And I think possibly the story here uh, is an interesting one. So Ali McKinnon, as mentioned, uh, leads the investment team here. He was due to go on a business trip to Japan back in February. It was cancelled in the early days of the pandemic. And uh, he tells a story quite self-effacingly that as a result of this, they they kind of latched on to the fact that this COVID-19 business might be a little bit more serious than perhaps some people were suggesting. And as a result of that, they sold down some of the more kind of cyclical names in, in the portfolio. And that's undoubtedly been uh, a good move because clearly, you know, the names such as uh, Marks and Spencer's, Macy's, some of the banks were quite hard hit during that period. So as a result of that, and the fact that they've got a number of the gold miners in their portfolio, which have done pretty well, the the, the performance has, has held up. So uh, an interesting story. It is a very, very different portfolio to the ones that you find in most of its peers. It has the most obvious value bias of any pretty much in that global peer group. So, you know, favoring very much uh, utility companies, tobacco companies, and as mentioned, they've got gold miners as well. So quite a different uh, investment portfolio. So it's called the Scottish Investment Trust, but it's one of these uh, long-standing uh, investment trusts with historical roots. So it doesn't invest in Scotland or anything like that. It's just based in Scotland. It was founded in Scotland, but invests globally, as does the next one I want to mention to you, which is another investment trust called Monks. Can we compare and contrast Monks with Scottish Investment Trust? and? what they've been saying and how they've been doing? So Monks, as you say, is another global equities uh, fund, and it's part of the Bailey Gifford stable. This fund had its annual results out to the end of April. And again, actually, uh, a good set of numbers in as much as that they outperformed. Uh, The NAV was up uh, over 3% in the period against a fall or decline in the benchmark of 1%. So marked outperformance. But really, I think the thing to look, and this is true for all the Bailey Gifford funds, is the long-term performance. And actually, this fund, it's been a Bailey Gifford fund forever. But in March 2015, so just over five years ago, they changed the way that this particular fund was being run. And since that point, the numbers to the end of April, the NAV was up over 80% compared with 55% for the FTSE world. So marked out performance over a five-year time period. And that's really what they're trying to generate. The the things that work well in this period, uh, some of their healthcare names uh, have done very well. They've also got some of the online companies that the Bailey Gifford managers particularly like, and Amazon and Shopify would be a good example of that. They also got a holding in Tesla, which, as you know, has been one of the winners this year. 
Um, and certain things probably haven't worked out quite so well for them. So, you know, it's it's different from, say, Scottish Mortgage Trust. It has a wider portfolio and it will have some kind of more cyclical names. And some obviously have uh, not worked out for it in this particular period. So Royal Caribbean Cruise is probably not where you want to be at the moment. They've, they've sold out to that one on Fiat Chrysler and First Republic Bank as well. But the lead manager on that fund, Charles Plowden, very respected manager and has been the senior uh, investment partner at Bailey Gifford. He's actually announced that he will retire at the end of April next year. But uh, one of the deputy managers, Spencer Adair, uh, will step up to to take over the portfolio. And um, again, hugely experienced investment team, and we wouldn't expect any change in the in the approach as a result. And if we just looked at the uh, the market metrics of these two trusts, do they uh, trade on uh, discounts or premiums? And, and are they one of these consistent uh, dividend payers that... Uh, we keep talking about as being a feature of uh, investment trust world. So Monks is trading on a, a premium at the moment, it's probably uh, three, three, 4% premium at the moment, depending exactly how you cut it. And as mentioned, has a good, strong, long-term track record. But it's if you're looking for a dividend, it's probably not the right place for you. So it's historic uh, yield at the moment is 0.2%. Uh, so nothing to get desperately excited about, but that's not what it's trying to generate. It's very much about capital growth. Scottish Investment Trust um, is trading on a uh, discount, probably about an 8% discount or so at the moment, and it actually um, has a discount control mechanism. So it tries via buybacks uh, to uh, limit that. So I think the discount target is 9% off the top of my head, but it's that that kind of level. So you wouldn't expect the discount to necessarily widen out from there, but it does offer um, uh, an attractive yield, 3.2% on a historic break, uh, basis. And it has a record, it's an AIC dividend hero. It's increased its dividend for 36 consecutive years. And it's already announced that it fully intends to make that 37, assuming that shareholder approval is forthcoming. Which I imagine it will be in the circumstances, almost certainly. There's still a couple of others we might talk about in this context. Let's just briefly mention a trust called Seneca Global Growth and Income. Tell us about Seneca, first of all. It's a Seneca is a classical illusion, but I don't suppose that's got anything to do with its, uh, with its uh, name or performance. Uh, what can you tell us about Seneca Global Growth and Income? So it is a uh, multi-asset fund, so it won't just invest in equities. It will have some of those, but it will look to diversify its portfolio um, into a whole range of asset classes. And it's, it will often use uh, collectives, so it does indeed buy some uh, other investment companies to achieve that. But it's trying to uh, generate attractive absolute returns uh, over a period of time and at the same time provide uh, a yield as well. So its um, yield at the moment, its historical yield is 4.8%. Uh, and it trades around anything as well. It has a zero discount policy. So again, it uses uh, buybacks and issuance to ensure that it trades around anything. So it removes the uh, chance of discount volatility. Um, this particular investment company had its annual results out to the end of April. Um, it's been a tough period, it's, it, it's fair to say. The NAV total return was down nearly 23%, um, some way behind its CPI uh, benchmark of 7% for that year. And it, it attributed that underperformance to its value style. And there's a whole, whole kind of bunch of names in the portfolio, uh, including the Schroeder UK Public Private Fund that we mentioned it had a holding in that, which wasn't uh, a great performer in that period, um, and owned uh, other companies such as Purple Bricks and uh, Ferrex Income and a few others that, that were quite tough during that year. But it's, as I said, it has a range of asset classes. It has 7% uh, in gold assets, and it's looking for shareholder approval, actually, to enable it to make an allocation of 20% to um, what it's calling defensive assets to kind of widen out its portfolio. 
But it's uh, quite a small uh, investment management company, is it? It's more of a boutique than a, than a large uh, investment management company, or they do a lot of other things as well, uh, Seneca? No, you're right. It is, it is one of the smaller investment companies. This is their only investment trust that they are uh, responsible for. Um, the team there, I mean, there have been a few changes over the years, but they've been together for many years and um, they came out of a, a life company for about 20 years or so ago. So um, a highly experienced team, but yeah, a more specialist boutique. Okay, so moving across to a somewhat larger uh, management house, let's talk about Lowland and another trust, which is called Henderson Opportunities Trust. So that's Lowland, LWI and uh, HOT, as it's known for short, both managed by the same team, I believe. Tell us what they've been saying this week. Lowland being managed by James Henderson and Laura Fall. Laura, uh, slightly more recently to the fray than James Henderson. I think James Henderson's involvement with Lowland goes back to, to the early 90s. Laura Fall um, has been working with him now for several years. We managed to catch up with them on the back of uh, They had uh, interim results to the end of March. Uh, and Lowland, again, so it's a UK, essentially UK equities play. It's had um, a tough year. Uh, it's underperformed year to date. And they really got hit quite hard in March during that market sell-off. So the, the, the FTSE all share, the UK market was down 15% in March. As we know, the, the investment trust in NAV terms was down 27%, so marked underperformance. And the reasons for that is they've got quite a heavy weight into uh, industrials and financials, and they are geared as well. So uh, not a great combination. But since then, they have bounced back. Um, and it's interesting catching up with with Laura. She always has some great insight into the marketplace. Uh, and we spent a, quite a lot of time going through her outlook in terms of dividends for not just Lowland, but the UK marketplace. Uh, and she made the comment that really, when, when you look through some of the, the companies in her portfolio, and this will be true for all the portfolio managers running money in, in, in the UK or on equity income type mandates, that you've really got to look company by company that undoubtedly some will look to rebase their payment ratios uh, as a result of this some will resume dividends in, in relatively quick time she she was mentioned that she thought some would be back on the register uh, by the end of this year but equally others uh, would not be paying out dividends for, for several years so quite a mixed period i think it's widely recognized now that the the uk marketplace will see dividends the dividend payout across the whole market down 40 or maybe even 50% this year, significant numbers. Uh, the questions obviously for investment trust companies, will they use their revenue reserves to sustain their dividends? And I think we talked about this one before. This is the chairman of Lowland commented that revenue reserves are there for a rainy day, but really we're in a thunderstorm at the moment. So this one has maintained its interim dividend, but they're going to review it as, as the year goes on. But, uh, you know, James Henderson and Laura, they're looking to take advantage of what's happened in the marketplace. And they've been adding to names. Um, so basically, companies quite beaten up, invariably those that have suspended their, their dividends and obviously fallen out of favour as a result. And they're the kind of names that they find attractive at the moment. So Marks and Spencers, they've been buying Marks and Spencers, Cineworld, Anglo-American. These are all names that have been popping into their portfolio over the last few months. So this is an interesting one. What, what the pattern, if you look back to 2008-9, Lowland got hit very hard during the financial crisis. But interestingly enough, it was one of the best performers coming out the other side. So that kind of cyclical value uh, bias to its portfolio, as and when there's a turn in the economic conditions, you would expect it to be one of the beneficiaries. Yes, I think that's fair to say. Certainly, um, that style works uh, better over the long term than the short term. In other words, it is more volatile than and the results come through over time, but they have got quite a good track record, I think, for that particular style of investing. So that was Lowland Hot. Let's move across to another now very well-known uh, UK investment management house, 
Uh, I should say that Lowlands are hot a part of uh, Janus Henderson. Uh, but let's move across to talk about Linsell Train and their investment trust, Linsell Train Investment Trust, which is uh, LTI, which has been one of the more spectacular performers of the last 20 years, I'd say, uh, until recently at least. So they've been a trust that often trades at an extraordinarily large discount. Uh, and that takes some understanding, though there are some good reasons for it. Well, perhaps you could take us through what they've been saying. So they had their annual results out this week uh, for the year to the end of March. And on the face of it, it looks like a good set of results. Their NAV total return was up nearly 10% and they have an absolute return benchmark. So 4% in this particular instance. So that sounds good. But actually, if you look at the share price total return, which is obviously probably at the end of the day far more importantly, because that's what the shareholders get, it was down 27%. So what was the story here? That The thing with Linsell Train, it actually trades normally at quite a significant premium to the NAV. And that's really the story here. They, they started off the year at a 65% premium, or 100% premium at one stage, but they finished off the year at 11% premium. So what's the story here? Well, actually, this investment trust has a holding in the fund management company, Linsell Train itself, which is obviously Nick Train, Mike Linsell, uh, Nick Train responsible for Finsby Growth and Income uh, in the investment trust space. And they have been uh, tremendously successful. So uh, unsurprisingly, though, given the market falls, their assets under management have declined. It's still uh, a very impressive £18 billion that they are responsible for. And Linsell Train, the fund management company, that holding in the portfolio represents 47%. So almost half of Linsell Train Investment Trust is is exposed to uh, Linsell Train, the fund management company. It might be worth explaining just how it came to be such a large proportion of the value of the investment trust. I mean, I can remember when this was launched, which was about 20 years ago, I think I can't remember exactly, but 20 years ago. And they had some trouble, you know, raising money back in those days. They were pretty unknown. They came from uh, another investment house. And uh, it was quite often a common, or has been common for when relatively unknown managers come to the market with an investment trust, they are persuaded to offer a little bit of an equity share in their own investment management company, as it were, a kind of sweetener to uh, encourage investors aboard. Uh, of course, nobody anticipated that they would be quite as successful as they are. To go from virtually nothing to 18 billion is pretty impressive uh, because their performance has been good and, and they've also been able to collect a lot of assets. So how do they value this, though? How, what, what's the basis for valuing this stake in what is still a private company, Yeah, the management and, company? And uh, they've kind of uh, evolved that valuation process uh, over the years. And they do give quite a lot of information uh, in their report and accounts how they value it. So there is a degree of consistency. It's obviously, as is true for most fund management companies, it will be based on assets under management and then a percentage attached to that. They will also look at the earnings stream and compare that with um, comparable earnings and the value that publicly listed uh, fund management companies are valued at. So unsurprisingly, given this market turmoil this year, listed fund management companies have been devalued and that will have an implication on the value of Linsell Train. But you're right, it's been a huge, huge success story on the back of very, very strong performance. So when this investment trust was launched, the holding in Linsell Train, the fund management group would be, uh, I can tell you off the top of my head the exact percentage, but it certainly wouldn't have been 47% or so of the portfolio. It would have been far, far smaller. So this has been the big driver of returns over the long term. It's it's an interesting one, though, because it does trade at such a, a premium uh, to its NAV. Nick Train himself has come out on several occasions and kind of warned investors that, frankly, it looks very expensive and please don't buy it right now in so many words because uh, the price has, has probably got a little bit ahead of itself. But it's certainly a different uh, and interesting investment. And indeed, it's come back now down to uh, uh, the level of premium, which we haven't seen for a long time, 
and that may or may not prove to be an opportunity. It depends how their performance uh, and their ability to retain their assets goes from here. Let's uh, move on to another interesting investment trust, which is a trust that used to be called Jupiter European Opportunities, managed by Alex Darwell at Jupiter, until very recently. And though its uh, ticker, J-E-O, remains the same, the trust is no longer called that, but it's actually called something else now. So tell us uh, what its name is now, Simon, and, and tell us what, uh, what's been going on there. It's been quite a dramatic week for them. It has been a dramatic week. So Jupiter European Opportunities is now called European Opportunities, and this followed its move from Jupiter. It followed its uh, long-term manager, Alexander Darwell, as he set up uh, Devon Equity uh, management towards the end of last year. But really, the big development this week, uh, towards the end of the week for European opportunities, is the news with regard to Wirecard. Now, Wirecard is a German uh, digital payments company, and it's one that uh, Alexander Darwell first invested back in, I think it was probably 2007. It's certainly been a long-term uh, investment for him, and actually, over the years, a very strong performer. Now, what happened in this particular instance is a, a couple of years ago, the Financial Times uh, ran a story uh, suggesting that all was not quite as it seemed and made, I think it was a whistleblowing story, suggested that there was some accounting fraud going on. This led to various investigations and Alexander Darwell stuck with the company, he was very um, publicly supportive. I mean, even as recently as February this year, he was on record as saying he trusted the Wirecard management and we expect the company's actions to be vindicated. But we got the news this week that as a result of an audit, that was a, there was a 1.9 billion euro uh, kind of hole in the accounts. There was no evidence of that, of its existence. Uh, and uh, the auditors apparently had found indications of fraud. Um, unsurprisingly, as a result of that, the share price fell 65% in one day. And it was certainly at the end of May, the largest holding in European opportunities portfolio. So it was about 10% of the NAV. So Alexander Darwell runs a very concentrated list, uh, particularly at the, the high end, and that was the largest position. Now, European opportunities came out uh, within 24 hours and said, look, we made a mistake. We did trust the management. We had lots of conversations with them. We realized we made a mistake and we have walked away. So as a result of that, uh, the NAV on that one day, uh, it fell about 6-7%. The NAV was down 7% on that day. But just to put that into context, despite that fall and, and to lose 7% of your NAV for an investment trust is quite a brutal fall. But if you look at over the last 10 years for this particular fund, and Alexander Darwell has been managing it all through that period, you know, its share price total return is up over three times compared with uh, you would have doubled your money with the index. So substantial outperformance, still a fantastic long-term track record. Though obviously they will be extremely disappointed by the news on the wire card. So just to be clear about that, you said when you said the share price fell by sixty five percent, that is the share price of Wirecard fell by sixty five percent. It is indeed, yeah. uh, and that in turn had an impact on JEO or European Opportunities Trust because of its substantial holding. In fact, it was its largest holding, wasn't it? As you said, yeah, uh, more than ten percent of the portfolio in one stock is quite a big bet, and to stick with it for so long, obviously shows commendable loyalty, perhaps, but. Um, uh, I guess there will be people who will who will then now ask questions about whether, um, despite his formidable track record, and it has been formidable, whether this is indicative of something that's gone wrong in the process. But uh, we shall see. It's been a very dramatic story. As you say, it's been phenomenally successful. But to come out and to say they sold it so quickly is interesting. It does show, um, I suppose you could say, that it shows 
ability to act decisively when they finally got the news that the uh, accounts seemed to be in question. Did they actually say whether they sold their stake before or after this announcement uh, from the uh, administrators, or did they not give any more details than they had sold it? So they have said that they sold all of the holdings in, in the company in Wirecard during the course of the 18th of June, which was the day that the bad news broke. So they right. got out that day. Right. So they managed to find someone to buy the whole stake, basically, is what that implies. Well, that's a very interesting story. And of course, if you've just launched a new investment trust company, uh, it's not the kind of news you would like to have. But as you say, the formidable track record may come into play there. We shall see. Let's move on to talk about private equity. We've heard from uh, at least a couple of uh, private equity trusts uh, in the last few days, and they've been given slightly contrasting stories. But let's talk about them. One is uh, called ICG Enterprise, and the other one is uh, Standard Life Private Equity. So Perhaps you could tell us uh, a little bit about them and what's the difference between them and, and what they've been saying. So ICG Enterprise uh, produced a quarterly update for the three months to the end of April uh, this week. And their NAV total return was down 4% uh, in the period, which frankly is probably better than most people would have expected given that period of turmoil around March. And I should say this is based largely now on valuations as at the end of March. The investment team at ICG, and it used to be the old Graphite Enterprise. Um, a few of the people have obviously changed over the years, but they've been at ICG now for three or four years. But the, the, the team there have made it clear that the fact that their NAV is down, but not quite as, uh, certainly not as down as much as the market was during that period of time, reflects its uh, defensive growth bias in terms of the kind of companies that they've invested in over the years, and also the, the structural downside protections that they have in place. So to be clear on that, they're not just investing through the equity of a company, their investment will be through a, a kind of quasi-debt, such as a preference share, which gives them a bit of protection on the, on the downside. But I think what was encouraging in this particular update is the fact that they suggested that the majority of the companies only expect to see relatively short-term headwinds or even a minimal impact from, from COVID-19. And so this is the information that's coming back from the call face. And again, just to be clear, with ICG Enterprise, they're investing in, in private companies, some in the UK, some in Europe, and some in the US. So these are companies in different locations around the world. But the overall message seems to be that they are facing up to the challenges um, and that they believe that they can see a way through it. In terms of the investment activity across the private equity industry, they expect things to be very slow for the kind of three to six month period but expect activity to, to pick up by the end of the year. And they also announced that their interim dividend of 5p will be maintained, which um, is probably not necessarily the primary reason you buy uh, private equity, or not in this case, but uh, every little helps. And actually, there's a relatively decent yield on that one. We also had interim results out from Standard Life Private Equity, and that was to the end of March. Uh, the NAV was down 6% in this particular instance, and that compares with a share price decline of 26% in the same period and that's obviously reflects the, the derating of all those private equity names at that stage and again you know the, the, there are signs of things perhaps not being quite as bad as we thought they might be when we when we saw that kind of market fall back in March now the valuations have started to come through they're not necessarily as bad as they could be though most of the the private equity guys are kind of suggesting that there might be more devaluations to come because obviously this is as invariably it's a, at the end of March um, and it was quite an early point in that whole lockdown process. So the Q2 period, i.e. the three months to the end of June, will obviously see quite a slump in, in earnings. So that's something to, to be wary of. But we have seen um, a bit of a recovery with the listed private equity names in general, although invariably they're all still quite 
substantial discounts, certainly wider discounts uh, than we saw uh, coming into this whole period. So that would certainly seem to imply anyway, I think they're both or have been trading around 30% discounts. I mean, that would certainly imply that there are probably going to be some further cuts in uh, in valuations to come. You would think so anyway, if that was the case, but they've always traded at quite a large discount. Of course, that's fair to say, I think, for most of the time since uh, they do trade at quite a big uh, discount uh, in times of market turmoil. But what do you think overall, though, the picture you're getting from talking to these private equity firms and also from the other companies you mentioned? I mean, it does seem to be a very mixed picture. In other words, some companies are saying, well, it depends, obviously, which sector you're in. The polarization in terms of experience and the corporate sector is considerable. But uh, overall, would you say that the kind of message you're getting or the feedback you're getting is is slightly more positive than it was when, when this thing first hit? Or is it less positive? In other words, is the market right to be kind of uh, seems to be taking some encouragement from the way that the news is developing at the moment? Clearly, it's going to vary quite a lot across the piece. But I think broadly speaking, people are reasonably positive. I think what's clear is that some companies have clearly have struggled a number of had to raise additional capital, be they private companies or listed companies, um, and they've invariably been funded. Uh, so they have received that money, which is obviously good news. I mean, going back to Lowland and the conversation with Laura Fall, because I asked her pretty much the same question, she made the point that, particularly from those mid and small cap companies, that they have put in place cost saving programs which invariably under normal circumstances would take two or three years to play out. But because of where we are, they're all kind of being pushed through in, in quite short order. Now, the downside of that is, unfortunately, it means that some people undoubtedly will lose their jobs through this, this process. And this has all been quite well documented in the media. But from a kind of investor point of view, what it means is that as and when we do see uh, economic uh, a pickup, then there should be quite a lot of operational gearing. So because businesses are being run on a much more lean basis, as and when their top line starts to come back, uh, that you should see the benefits coming through uh, at the bottom line. That's certainly one theory. But overall, and certainly with the, with the, uh, on the private companies, people seem quite positive. I think there, there is a feeling that the amount of stimulus that's being pushed into the system by the central banks and by the governments um, is absolutely remarkable. I mean, we, we, we got a flavour of it, obviously, back in 2008-9, but this is on a different scale altogether. So although, you know, there are clearly some companies that really will struggle, the broad picture is, is reasonably positive. And of course, we know the Bank of England announced uh, additional stimulus this week, but we're still waiting to hear exactly what the, uh, the government and the Treasury are going to be saying about taxation rates and so on. And that will obviously have an impact as well on potential profitability and employment numbers. Well, let's move on those away from that rather mixed picture towards a sector which has done uh, very well and to some extent is immune from this kind of pressure, which is uh, the renewables sector. And I'm going to ask you about Bluefield Solar Income, BSIF, which is uh, one of a small number of uh, renewable energy investment trusts, which have been performing very steadily, and that's what they're designed to do, and they have been performing very steadily, but they've had some interesting news this week. What has Bluefield Solar Income been saying? So they have made some proposals. They're looking to change their investment policy. So as their name would suggest, they are a solar play at the moment. So they invest in solar farms around the UK, uh, and that has worked very well for them. But they're looking to kind of broaden out their investment policy to allow them to invest up to 20% of their gross assets in non-solar renewable energy and energy storage units. Uh, and that includes 10% outside the UK uh, and also a smaller element in development projects. 
Now, the story here, this is not just true of Bluefield Solar, but it's true across the whole kind of renewable infrastructure space is that actually this has been a, a hugely successful area. A lot of capital has been deployed uh, and you can see that just going around the country in terms of wind farms and, and solar farms and all the rest of it. But actually, the opportunity from an investment point of view in the UK is now not as great as it once was. There's quite a lot of money chasing those opportunities that drives the potential returns down. So many of these uh, renewable infrastructure funds, when they were launched, well, they still do have attractive returns, but not as attractive as they did at the point that they were launched. So in order to address that, Bluefield, and it would be true of some of its peers as well, are looking to broaden out that mandate to enable them to invest in opportunities, where actually the returns might be slightly more attractive than is the case in, in the UK. And in fact, with Bluefield, they've also said that their dividend growth link to inflation has been removed. They're not alone in that. That seems to be the direction of travel for most of these names. And again, it goes to this point that the returns in the space uh, are no longer as high as they were when these things were launched. So the story has changed somewhat, but uh, they continue to trade well, I believe. I mean, they have a lot of their trading around par or sometimes at a premium. In, in this case, I think quite a significant premium. Would you expect that to change as these changes come through? Well, I think there's a few things going on. Bluefield's on a 20% premium uh, at the moment. And the average premium in that renewable infrastructure space is, is mid-teens, probably about 14%. So again, quite substantial. And, and there's probably two key drivers of that, or maybe two or three. One, the yield. Bluefield's yielding over 6%. Uh, and in this period of low interest rates, anyone who can offer a 6% yield on a sustainable basis will find some favour. The fact that people are also looking for socially responsible type investments. Um, I think solar, wind, and a number of these renewable energy names play quite well to that. There's certainly demand. And I think there's also people looking for asset classes that are uncorrelated to the market, uh, be, it, be it equities or bonds. And infrastructure now has been through a couple of cycles and it's, and it's held up very well. So that's not to say it doesn't face a number of challenges, but you can see why people like this space and are prepared to pay up, pay premiums to get access to it. And this is despite the fact that, as we discussed uh, last week or the week before, that the outlook for power prices uh, for electricity prices has, has fallen or is falling at the moment. Obviously, that may well be just a one-off effect as a result of the shortfall in demand and the slowdown in the world economy. But they don't seem to have much impact on the valuations of solar companies, for example. And, and there's a reason for that. Why is that? You're right. There is an element of energy price movements in, in terms of the valuations of these funds. And obviously, we are kind of moving into a period of lower energy prices, and that has had an impact on the NAV. So when we've had NAV updates, they've invariably been down for that very reason. But in terms of the valuations, I think it comes back to the fact that people are, are looking for the yield. As long as the yield uh, levels hold up, then I think that kind of works. Some of the older uh, more established renewable infrastructure funds have more subsidized projects as well. So they are less exposed to energy prices. That's probably worth noting as well. So they're by no means a pure play on energy prices. So some of their contracts were basically, they don't move around in response to what the global market is doing. So let's move on finally now to, uh, well, there's a couple of things I just want to mention in passing because they're interesting about the investment trust sector itself. There's been an interesting development at an investment trust called Gabelli Value Plus, GVP, which I don't think is a particularly well-known a name over here, the Mario Gabelli, the, after which the management company is named, has been a well-known investor in the United States. Uh, what's been going on there? We had a curious announcement this week, uh, something which we don't often hear, which is uh, the board making a vote about the continuation of the company. What have they said? 
So the story here with Gabelli value plus plus uh, is oh, that plus plus, plus uh, don't forget it's last plus uh, is okay. that it's been a disappointing performer. I think it's fair to say, particularly over uh, since the period of time from its launch. Uh, we saw uh, last year one of its large shareholders, being Investec Wealth and Investments, one of the largest uh, wealth managers, publicly take on the board uh, and say, you know, you're not looking after shareholders as well as you should do and pointed out the performance have been disappointing. We've got this continuation vote coming up at the AGM on the 30th of July. And as you rightly say, the board has recommended that shareholders vote uh, against it, though we did see one director unnamed, but one director uh, abstain uh, in terms of that. So you're totally right. We don't often see boards of directors uh, suggest that you vote against continuation so it's kind of there's a turkey's christmas thing going on here a little bit or reverse of that normal saying but uh, it is an interesting situation i think it does reflect in this particular instance that that shareholders uh, and these are not active shareholders by any stretch of the imagination but uh, you know ordinary good long-term shareholders have been prepared to say this isn't working uh, we need to think again well that's uh, an interesting situation i think it's fair to say also that the uh, the management team have quite a significant stake in that one do they not uh, so that would be kind of a bit like a kind of proxy battle between the two sides, between uh, between the wealth manager on one side and the management company on the other, with the board kind of in the middle. That'll be interesting to watch if you like your drama in that form. There are a couple of things we could talk about finally before we before we wrap up. Obviously, the uh, central banks are pumping a lot of money into the economy, and as you've noted already, there is doesn't seem to be much difficulty for a lot of companies raising money from shareholders. And the same goes for uh, some of these investment trusts. If you've got a good story. I thought it might be worth mentioning uh, there's an investment trust called Warehouse REIT. Uh, REIT is a real estate investment trust. Uh, it's called Warehouse for a reason, I dare say. And they've been raising money, have they not? Uh, How has that been going? Yeah, so they announced that they'd uh, issued 90 million shares at 110p per share on a, on a placing. So in other words, they raised um, 100 million pounds. Um, and actually, that represented uh, an increase on the 75 million pounds they were looking to raise. So that's good. And actually, they've said they're looking to raise a further 100 million pounds in a, in a, in a placing uh, open offer and offer for subscription uh, in short order. So they're a relatively uh, new REIT, uh, new investment company. Uh, and they've proven very successful. We know that property has been a very difficult asset class or section of the market, but actually they've consistently traded on a premium. They're on a 3% premium at the moment and offering a yield on a historic basis of 5.6%. And so when they're seeing these opportunities to deploy capital, investors and shareholders seem quite prepared to follow their money and uh, give them additional money. So even in these difficult times, it is possible to raise new money. Well, who would have thought 20 years ago that you could raise, you know, 200 million to, to buy some warehouses or to fund some warehouses? But of course, that's effectively just reflecting the, the new digital economy. That's why I imagine that warehouses and what we call logistics have become so popular, because they, they seem to be the area where there's going to be growth in the property sector, whereas, as we know, retail and shopping centres have been in a lot of trouble. Uh, but that presumably is what they're investing in, is that is, that is their game? Absolutely correct, yeah. It, it's very much a kind of play on the digital economy. So. There were those people who are uh, investing property as a matter of course and might be ill, but equally those people who are playing this on a thematic basis as well and looking for those areas of growth, such as the digital economy. So my final question to you, Simon, and I'm always trying to catch you out here, but I wondered if I asked you, when I looked at this last year, I, I created a table of uh, investment trusts that were the best performers over 20 years. What do you think came out top of that list? This is an investment trust that's been around that long and actually has the best performance of all the investment trusts in the sector. This was last year, I hasten to add. 
What do you think it would be? I actually think I know you know the answer. Well, I, I've had a tip off, so I do know the answer. But I can <laughs> I can tell you now, I wouldn't have picked this out. I might have given you a name like Itchy Capital. I might have said Worldwide Healthcare or a tech company, maybe if the period works out, it probably does. But you're going to tell me that it's J.P. Morgan Russian Securities. I am I going to tell you that. I don't think I'd have plucked that one out of the air, shamefully, but I, I don't think I would have got that right. Uh, I think it partly refers to the fact that if you remember in the late sort of in the 1990s, uh, there were emerging market crises and uh, Russia was very out of favour. So it has been a remarkable story. It's still, I think it's been managed by the same manager for quite a long time, I believe. Uh, and they had some interims this year. It's a, it tends to be a very volatile because when you think about it, if you're investing in Russia, what are you actually investing in? But just tell us finally what, uh, what they've been up to and... Uh, and how they trade normally. So they had their interim results out to the 30th of April, and unsurprisingly, it was a tricky period. The NAV was down 19% uh, compared with a fall for 18% for the, the benchmark. But you're right, this is a long-term story. Uh, it is quite volatile. The manager, Oleg, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his, his surname, but he's a fantastically entertaining speaker. Uh, if you ever have the chance to hear him speak, I think he served in the, in the Russian Navy back in the day. Uh, but he's managed this fund since 1997. So he's got a few stories uh, that he can offer. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, something a little bit different, probably not a mainstream investment, but again, a very interesting story. And I think many people who specialize in emerging markets will tell you that Russia is, is a cheap market, and there's probably a good reason for that. But it obviously has quite a lot of correlation with, with the commodity markets, with the energy market as well. So an interesting play. It traded on about a 13% discount at the moment and offering a a yield on a historic basis of just short of 6%. Well, there you are. If you rummage around in the investment trust market, you're going to find some very odd things like that. And, uh, but surprisingly successful and, and well done to him. I haven't even had a chance to ask you about how the market performed this week, Simon. So perhaps you could just finish off by telling us how, uh, how the market and the sector performed this week. Yeah, I know it's been a relative decent uh, week for the market. The, the FTSE All Share probably up about 3% or so. Uh, investment company probably a little bit ahead of it. So all good. Uh, the sector average discount um, between 6 and 7%. So there are certainly some investment trusts trading on um, some significant discounts out there. So I'm going to thank you for that, Simon. Thank you for your thoughts as always. I'm going to just give a quick plug for an event that uh, we've been asked to uh, perform at. If you've got this far in the podcast, you're obviously um, an investment trust aficionado. And I'd like to mention the fact that we've been asked to appear, do a, a special podcast for an event being organized, something called Virtual Mellow, which is an online meeting, obviously, with a lot of private investors. It's a very popular annual gathering for those who are interested in smaller companies and investment trusts. Uh, and we are going to be doing a special podcast with the chance to a Q&A afterwards, a live Q&A. So you can try and catch Simon out with something, some devilish <laughs> question, if, you, if you're willing to join us there. The, uh, you'll find it by looking on Virtual Mellow, on, uh, if you Google that or or look in a search engine for that, you'll find the details. It's on July the 11th. On that note, thanks again, Simon. Look forward to speaking next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.